Hi everyone, Lockie Mansell here, welcome to Checkered Flag Chat. Our guest this week is a driver who could quite easily be classified as the most successful non-professional driver in Australian motorsport history. That might sound like a big call, but to put it simply, Jeff Emery has a CV that's the envy of racing drivers all over Australia. His accomplishments are highlighted by an astonishing 10 national titles across three different categories. In the podcast, Jeff opened up on every aspect of his motorsport career, including his early days in Commodore Cup, the highs and lows of his time in the V8 Supercars Development Series, and his more recent success in Australian GT. So without any further ado, let's launch into our checkered flag chat with Jeff Emery. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. And let's go right back to 1997 to start off with, when you happened to be standing in a service station just around the corner from where you lived in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And uh, I think you were standing in line waiting to pay for petrol and you saw a copy of Auto Action and picked it up as something to read and uh, happened to see an ad for a Commodore Cup car. Yeah, that's pretty much it, mate. And obviously, ever since then, I've sort of been hooked. I mean, let, let, let's not forget that the Commodore Cup car came with its own tandem trailer as well. So, I, so it gave me the opportunity to tow the, tow the car to the track myself and obviously work on it flat out. But um, yeah, no, that was um, certainly the, the best day of my life of racing was certainly Commodore Cup was the most exciting part, the most rewarding part was, you know, obviously building your own car, developing your own car, you know, dragging it to the track on your own town trailer and racing against, you know, competitive guys. So it was, it was certainly probably, you know, a highlight of my racing career for sure. When you went and picked up that very first Commodore Cup car and you got it back home, what was it actually like? Did you have to do much work on it to get it ready to hit the track? Um, yeah, a fair bit. I was lucky I was fairly mechanically minded. Like, I'd been playing around with, you know, Commodores and Tiranas and all that sort of stuff over the years. And so I was already fairly handy on the tools. I'm not a mechanical trader and don't have any trade at all. But, you know, I sort of I learned how to do it out of necessity. And, yeah, I guess, you know, I just started working on the thing. As, as the thing broke down, I just fixed it and worked out how to fix it the, the right way. And, yeah, just kept learning by trial and error, I guess. You know, it was a, it was a long, long learning curve, trust me. Can you remember much about your first actual race meeting in that car? Yeah, my first actual race meeting in that car, I, um, uh, Christian DeGostin rang me up when he first out when he first worked out that I'd bought a car, and he'd organised some transport. So we put the cars on a transport carrier, and I had um, uh, a little uh, little trolley jack that I got from from local Repco store, and I had a little uh, C-Chrome socket set, and I had two spare wheels, and I, I crammed them in the boot of the car. And I put the car in the truck and we sent it to uh, Lakeside Motor Raceway. So we turned up there for the weekend and I'd never really driven a racing car. And Andrew McGuinness came up. You know, I did my license actually with Andrew McGuinness at, uh, the, the, you know, a couple of weeks beforehand. And he tried to fail me from saying I, I broke abruptly and, and turned aggressively. So he tried to fail me on my license and wasn't very happy with my driving. So uh, he was actually on the grid at uh, the first race for uh, Commodore Cup of Lakeside and actually out-qualified him. So I was quite happy to do that. <laughs> so uh, that was pretty much my highlight. 
Thinking about lakesiders and racetracks and they making your debut as well, pretty uh, pretty daunting circuit to go racing for the first time with some high-speed corners and Armco barriers not too far away. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a very, very exciting track. I loved racing at Lakeside. I think it's um, got the highest average speed of any racetrack in Australia, but we used to be. I'm not sure if it's still got that, um, that reputation, but... Um, yeah, about a year later, I went up there for a practice day the week before the race meeting, and my mother had never been to the racetrack before, and she was standing on the side of the track, and I came around the back back side of the track there down the hill under the bridge, and I lost the car on the grass sideways and did about 10 360s in front of her and just missed the wall, and she hasn't really enjoyed the racetrack much since. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, so... Um, Always been exciting. I, I really do enjoy Lakeside, even still, uh, even after that incident, it was great. So, when you came into Commodore Cup, you didn't have any prior experience in any racing categories. It wasn't like you'd come out of open wheelers or even go karts. So, how did you learn the driving technique side of things? And did you have any mentors to to lean on or consult with who were able to help you learn and improve? <laughs> Well, yeah, to be honest, um, I already had competitive competitive in me because obviously I'd raced motorbikes most of my life and sort of broken every bone in my body. And the doctor sort of said, well, if you keep racing motorbikes like this, we're going to be pushing around a wheelchair. So I pretty much had to sell my motorbike. So I was always always a competitive person. But, um, yeah, look, not really. Um, for the first probably three years, I probably did it on my own pretty much. And then um, I hooked up with a guy by the name of Steve Carlos. And um, he he started to teach me how to develop the car, and we sort of together we sort of developed the car, and then we sort of moved on from there because Steve, Steve was very clever with the um, you know the fabrication work. So we started making our own parts and, and, and fiddling around a bit, and then I got on with his um, engine builder, and then we started really moving forward at that point with his help. I remember you you had a workshop set up your house in Mary Warren, which I actually stayed in a couple of times, where you had a dyno and hoists and um, a whole lot of other gear and equipment and infrastructure that you were able to use. How much of a process was it getting all of that stuff set up? Look, it was a huge process, but it was also a huge um, inconvenience um, relying on other people to make parts for you, repair the car. Like we had a full-time panel beater there repairing the car and just doing other work as well. Um, I, you know, I pretty much got I'm sick of going to, the, going to the engine dyno all the time and developing an engine and then someone else from our category would go to the same engine dyno and then they'd just teach them everything that I'd just spent the last you know week on their dyno paying for. They'd teach them all in one day and then leave. And I thought, well, this is kind of frustrating for me and I, I really didn't like sharing sharing all that development that I'd worked so hard for. So that sort of moved me to the next stage where I thought, well, if we're going to do this seriously, we really need to think about getting our own dyno. So I hooked up with a um, guy named Alan Sheridan in New Zealand. He owned Dynapack and we sort of spoke and then he said the local college had a, had one sitting there that had never been used. So I went down and spoke to those guys and the dyno was sitting there and he was right. It was under, under a cover and the guys down there didn't even know how to use it. And they didn't, they didn't have the rest of the equipment to make it work. So, so the deal was I'd go in there and I'd get the dyno working for them up and running and I'd do demonstrations for the kids there and show them how the race car worked. And we sort of had a bit of a deal going with those guys. You know, we had a couple of, you know, like we'd call it work experience guys come up to the shed on a regular basis 
work on the cars and well not necessarily work on the cars just sort of help us out a bit you know with bits and pieces whatever they were capable of but I formed a relationship with those guys with Dynapack and, and, and the local Dudson College so you know it, it all worked in really well for us. So Commodore Cup for those who are not familiar with it the engines that those cars were running with the old 253 or the 4.2 litre V8 motors that powered a range of Holdens mainly in the 70s and early 80s so Kingswoods and, and early model Commodores so by the time Commodore Cup rolled around, so we're talking late 90s and early 2000s, it's an engine that certainly wasn't cutting edge in terms of technology. But uh, one of the things that you and some of the other Commodore Cup competitors were able to do was to tune those engines up to produce pretty handsome amounts of horsepower. Yeah, definitely. With the, with the Dynapack Dyna, I mean, it was very, very, very sensitive. So it was, it was really good for research and development. Like, I mean, you turn the headlights on on the car, and then you, you notice like a two kilowatt loss at the rear tyres. So it was extremely easy to see where the, where the gains and losses were. I mean, we, we used to dyno the car when it'd come home from the race meeting. Before to go back in the truck, we'd dyno it again. And, you know, we knew the numbers we needed to make, and you know, it just made life so much easier. Like we always had the maximum power that that engine could produce every single time we, we used it. You know, so we knew, you know, when the valve strings were going off or the rings were going away, or you know, we just started to know those engines like the back of our hand at the end. You know, I mean, they were very similar to like the three hundred eight, um, like in the Oscar days. So we, a lot of those, you know, modifications we learned off a lot of those guys, but. Yeah, there was a lot of development going to those engines, and you know we we got them we got them going really good in the end. You won your first Commodore Cup title in two thousand and two. Do you remember much about breaking through for that first championship victory? Yeah, that was uh, pretty exciting. Like it, it took it actually took a long time. Well, it felt like a long time for me to actually even win a race in Commodore Cup, like, you know, I really struggled for my, my first podium. And then once I sort of got my first podium, you know, the floodgate sort of opened and I, and I sort of released something, you know, I guess, you know, you sort of build more confidence and then and away you go. But I do remember the first championship, it was, um, it was ended at Oran Park and it was, it was like a 45 degree day in the shade and it was, it was, it was really tough, tough racing. So yeah, no, it's um, really exciting to sort of share that with, um, Frankie and Scotty and, and Trill, you know, as, as a team, you know, the, the four of us sort of travelled all, all over the place sort of doing it. And it was there was a lot of hard yards back in those days. You know, we used to – my, my crew used to work, have normal jobs during the week, so we'd drive home from Oran Park on a Sunday night and they'd go to work on the Monday morning. So, you know, we used to drive through the day and through the night. So, you know, a lot of people put a lot of effort into that first championship. And then obviously, you know, everyone got the taste of it. And then we went on to obviously win five more after that. So, but definitely the first one was the most exciting. As you said, the floodgates opened after that first one because you won another title in 2003 and then another one in 2004 and another one in 2005. So once you started winning, you couldn't stop. From those first four titles, 02, 03, 04 and 05, I suppose it's like trying to ask you who your favourite um, son or daughter is, but were there any of those championships that particularly stood out or were they all special for different reasons? Oh, they were all special. I mean, you know, your first championship's always the most exciting because you just, you know, it's just you work so hard to get it. And, and my, my guys had just worked so hard to get it, you know, like we'd all just put in so much and so much, you know, and, you know Frankie and Scotty and Cheryl just sort of given so much of their of their time and their life, I guess, to, to do it. So it was really rewarding to, for us to win that championship as, as a group, you know. So 
you know, and obviously Steve Carl's helped us a lot back in those days as well. And then obviously sort of halfway through that, um, Tony Tony Bates sort of came on board with us and, you know, he brought a few sponsors and a bit, a bit of financial help along the way, which was obviously, you know, which obviously helped a fair bit in the area with the development as well because we actually shared a lot of the development costs over the years as well. So, you know, at, at the start when Tony came on, it was sort of hard for us to, to accommodate the extra car. But... Um, Moving forward, we learned how to do that, and we just got obviously more people to help. And but then we, we we adapted and we became stronger, I believe. You know, as, as a two car team, you know. So and Tony obviously went from the back of the field to front of the field with good equipment, you know, and he was happy as well. So it was um, yeah, it was really good was, as a team, you know. Then we had you know, Liam and, and Bruce and and Co. You know, on team, and it was it, we ended up with a really really good bunch of guys, have a good time. I'm glad you, you brought up Tony because he's somebody who I wanted to talk to you about. And uh, in fact, once this podcast gets published, I'm probably going to cop an angry text message from him that uh, you've been a guest on the podcast before him. But uh, you, you and Tony have obviously had a very long-standing friendship. You've been teammates, not just in Commodore Cup, but in several other categories since then as well. But where did that relationship first start or how did it first get underway? Oh look, you know Tony was obviously hooked up with with a, with another other guy that was looking after the car, which probably wasn't doing the right thing by him. We sort of we made friends at a racetrack and sort of I tried to help him a little bit, but the guy was helping him already knew best, so we sort of stepped back and sort of let it happen. And then Tony sort of worked out that you know we're, we're sort of winning races, we probably knew we probably know a little bit more about what we're doing. So he asked um, well, Frankie and him started talking, and and sort of Frankie introduced us and. And away we went, you know, it took a little while to, to, for me to warm to it, to be very honest. I probably didn't warm to it at the start. And, you know, it took a long time for us to um, obviously, you know, get comfortable with each other and start sharing all the technology that we'd spent so much time and effort putting together. And after that, you know, it was um, we ended up with a really good relationship. Apart from Tony, there were some other very, uh, very accomplished drivers in Commodore Cup who you had some great battles with over the year. Uh, over the years, you've already mentioned Christian DeGostin, um, Tim Shaw. Obviously, he was one of the front runners in the early days of you coming into the category. Marcus Zukanovic was someone who you had quite a long-standing rivalry with. The Holdsworth brothers, Lee and Brett. Ashley Cooper, uh, Danny Richard was one who you had some really good battles with in the later years of Commodore Cup. Any who particularly stood out that you raced against? Mm, I reckon probably, you know, probably Danny Richard was probably, he was, a, he was an extremely fair and talented racer. I mean, he was, he would, he would never really, we never really made contact with each other. You know, we could race side by side. Like, you know, Danny was probably, you know, he was a, he was a fierce racer. I mean, obviously Marcus came of age after a few years and you know, I mean he obviously had really good equipment as well and you know sort of yeah but I, I'd probably say Danny was probably the probably the, the, the biggest rivalry I guess when he when he was on song um you know he was really really hard to beat you know we had really had to be on our game yeah I, I agree with you on that because I was commentating the season of Commodore Cup which was 2007 where you and him were battling quite ferociously and Unfortunately, towards the back end of that season, there was a bit of politics within the category, which meant that Danny wasn't able to complete that season. And in my mind, he's actually one of the great undiscovered talents of Australian motorsport. He's one of those drivers where you sort of have to wonder what he might have been able to achieve if, if things had worked out a little bit differently for him. But um, 
on the back of your fourth Commonwealth Cup title in 2005, you decided to make the step up to the Supercars Development Series, which at that stage was the Fujitsu Series in 2006. Um, on paper, the ingredients looks like they were going to be pretty good for you because you were joining the Smith's Trucks team. That was a team that had previously had some success with Lee Holdsworth, who'd also moved up from Commonwealth Cup a couple of years prior. You had an experienced teammate in Nathan Pretty, so all the ingredients and all of the foundations looked like they were going to be there for you to make quite a successful transition. Unfortunately, it, uh, it didn't quite work out for you that year, though, did it? No, unfortunately, um, yeah, I'd made a bad decision and, and hooked up with, it, with, it, with, it, with a probably incompetent team, to be honest. At the end of the day, they, they, you know, they didn't really have the budget to run the cars properly. The car was extremely unreliable. I mean, I only got, like, four laps of practice ever in a supercar before I ended up on the grid at Adelaide. So, you know, I didn't really know how to drive the car and all of a sudden I'm on the grid at Adelaide in a 45-degree temperature, you know, learning the track. So it was a really tough introduction to, for me to do, to to go with those guys because the car was so unreliable for the whole year. And, you know, and it just, yeah, just I really, really struggled to get on top of it that year. It was, it was a really, it was a waste of time, to be honest. Yeah, not to mention the fact that back then the fields were massive. You would have 40-plus cars turning up for every round. You had reverse grid formats in a lot of rounds as well, so that created a fair bit of damage sometimes with the faster cars coming through from the back of the field. You made the decision to step back to Commodore Cup in 2007. Was that born out of the frustration that you'd had from the 06 season or was it more were you thinking a bit longer term about putting the infrastructure in place to uh, return to development series in 2008 with your own team to be to be honest i, I probably lost a lot of confidence like you know i, I knew i was better than the results that i was getting in in fujitsu series you know i mean guys that were beating me shouldn't have been beating me and I lost a lot of confidence, and I just thought, and I, to be honest, I just had enough. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go back and do it, do what I enjoy the most, and just go back to Commodore Cup. It was nice and easy. It wasn't expensive, you know. It was well within my budget. I said, I'm just, you know, just to be honest, I, I had no intention of coming back to, to Supercar again after that bad experience. So, and then sort of, sort of midway through the year, um, I sort of met up with Sean Scott, and then we started doing a deal with with um, the HRT car and then we sort of went on from there. But, yeah, I, yeah, I, I was really disheartened with the whole Fujitsu thing, to be honest. I didn't want to really go back. Unfortunately, I, I want to touch on the 2007 Commodore Cup season a bit more because that was actually my first year working in Commodore Cup. In fact, it was really my first year working full-time in motorsport. I'd only just finished high school at that stage. I hadn't even started studying at uni yet, but I wanted to get some experience and the Commodore Cup media and, and commentary role came up. It was certainly a, uh, an eye-opening initiation for me into the sport with the amount of politics that was going on behind the scenes in Commodore Cup that year with various technical changes and power struggles among the, the administration at the top end of the sport and uh, a lot of people that had lots of different opinions about how the category should have been run. Just before we, we finish the, the Commodore Cup chapter, it was a great category. Everybody who drove those cars absolutely loved them and I know that you still today can't speak highly enough of the category. Uh, lots of people have got lots of different theories about why the category ultimately collapsed. Um, do you think that in the end there was just too much 
politically driven egos, and that's why it failed. Oh, definitely. A lot of people just really didn't understand. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there was a, it was it was a couple of people contributing a lot, and 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 a majority of people not contributing pretty much anything at all, but but then bitching about not getting value for money, but they weren't really contributing anything. And a lot, you know, for, for instance, entries and stuff, you know, like. People like Ross McGregor were tipping money out of their own pocket every race meeting to keep that category alive, but others didn't didn't appreciate. They thought he was making profit out of it, but he was actually going backwards at a mere miles an hour. So, just a lack of understanding, a lack of empathy for you know for people that were making it happen. You know, it's it's it was just such a shame that it happened that way. That it was an absolutely awesome category to racing. I mean. It was definitely the best years in my life racing those cars. I really enjoyed them. And, you know, Australia really needs another category like that, just sort of as a, as a stepping stone to, to do anything, really. I, I agree with you on that. And I think that we are getting back to something like that with the, the Trans Ab slash TA2 series in its various guises is probably filling the void that was left by the demise of Commodore Cup, and I think that's a good thing. But you, you mentioned Ross McGregor there, and we'll jump around a bit on this podcast. It doesn't necessarily have to be all in chronological order, but you formed a very good friendship with Ross and a bit of an alliance with him as well. And um, you, you've been doing some driver coaching and drive development work with him, which started your Commodore Cup and has progressed into the other categories that Ross has raced in, including the Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge. How much satisfaction have you derived from doing that driver development with Ross and seeing him continue to improve? Look, over, over the years, sort of Ross, I mean, Ross is a, is a, is a fantastic guy. You know, he's, um, he, he's one, of my, one of my good mates, so... You know, it's 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 extremely enjoyable to go there and help him and watch him progress with his motorsport. I mean, that's you know, he, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he just loves his motorsport, and you know, loves loves all of his family and the people around him. So it's sort of, it's really easy to be a part of that that family with him. And I mean, and, and a, a good example is that we um, were racing at Sandown two years ago, and I was racing in the GT category, and I actually won my weekend. But I, I actually enjoyed the moment of helping Roscoe get his first podium more than me actually winning the main, and I was in the main event. So, you know, I actually enjoyed that more, um, giving something back to the sport with Ross instead of him getting his first podium than I did actually getting my own, my own win of the weekend. So, you know, it's very, very, yeah, very satisfying. So we get to 2008. You've done the deal with Sean Scott. You also employed young uh, Janelle Navarro, who went on to become quite a prominent female mechanic within the V8 Supercars Championship. And uh, I suppose at this stage you, you had control of your own destiny. You had your own workshop and your own facilities prepare a car to run in the Fujitsu Series for yourself and also for Tony Bates. But uh, unfortunately, the 2008 Fujitsu series started in the most tragic of circumstances at Adelaide with a horrific crash at Turn 8, which claimed the life of um, a good mate of both you and I, uh, Ashley Cooper. I um, don't want to put too much of a damper on it, but I do think that it is important that we acknowledge the life of Ashley and just uh, how much of a good friend he was for, for both of us. Oh, absolutely, mate. It was, it was tragic for all of us. I mean, a real... <laughs> 
we all really struggled sort of to continue on with racing after that. It was sort of nothing was the same after that. It was um, such a sad moment. It was, yeah, I, yeah, I just, I really don't have any words to explain that. I mean, it was just absolutely devastating. I mean, we're following your friend through a corner and then you see him have a crash and then, you know, we kept driving past lap after lap thing and, you know, just, come on, mate, get going. What are you doing? And then to find out later that he was, he was so ill that he wasn't going to make it was just, we were all just shattered, you know. We just didn't know what to do with ourselves. So, Yeah. Terrible. I mean, it's just, I, I don't know what else I can say. Yeah, it was a pretty dark moment. I wasn't actually there that weekend, and I remember that you were the first person who I actually rang when I, I saw the crash on the news and uh, realised how serious it was. And, um, yeah, that was a moment that sent shockwaves through the sport, that was for sure. But um, looking at the, the time that you and Tony spent running as tag motorsport, in the, the Fujitsu series, which um, ultimately became the Dunlop series. Obviously, you know, the, the first year in 2008 was probably a bit tough in terms of getting caught up in some incidents and just understanding how to best set the cars up and make them work. But gradually, you were making progress. And by 2010, you were able to finish in the top 10 in, in the championship. So just give us a bit of an insight into how you went with developing those cars and um, and the improvement curve that you you underwent as a team. I mean, you've got to you yeah. I mean, it was it was a lot of hard work and obviously a lot of money as well. I mean, you look at like years like you know say 2010. I mean, I'm just pulling that up now. I mean, to see what what sort of guys were racing against, and it was you know. You, you talk about, you know, guys like Nick Perkat and Fiore and, you know, all those sorts of guys, you know, was and then sort of you know, the Scotty McLaughlin's sort of coming on the on the end of the end of the end of the fray after that, you know. So we sort of we raced a lot a lot against a lot of, you know, hard hard charging guys, you know. It was um it, it was it was it was it was hard work to beat those guys, you know, like you really had to work hard and a lot of them were backed by you know, uh, you know, uh, main teams and stuff. I mean, uh, you know, you look at the grid for, you know, say 2013, you've got, you know, Chaz Mossett, Dan Gord, Ash Walsh, you know, Andrew Jones, Dale Wood, you know, Casey Stoner, you know, you know all those little Chris Pither, you know, Nick McBride, you know, just Cam Waters, you know, all that, Andre Helmgartner, all those guys are on the grid. And it's, you know, they're all superstars now, you know, sort of, you know, it's sort of, it, we've sort of, you know, um, it's it was it was difficult to sort of have our own car and running our own sort of thing without without any factory factory team backing us. So in in 2011, you actually aligned with Greg Murphy Racing just to try and get a bit yeah. more uh, support, I suppose, and have some access to some data and to be able to tap into their knowledge and expertise about how to best run those cars. And again, when we look at your championship results, you were eighth in the championship in 2012, and that was the season where you had Scott McLaughlin and Nick Perkett, Scott Pye, uh, and Chaz Mostert were all running in the field that year. So um, as somebody, you would have been, what, 42 or 43 by then. Um, how much satisfaction did it give you being able to race wheel to wheel with drivers of that calibre? Oh, absolutely. It, it was tough. I mean, you know, we, we were racing, you know, for tenths and half the tenths back in those days. It was, it was, it was really, really tough racing. And you know, to get to get a top ten against those guys was like it was, it was really satisfying. You know, like it was a, almost like a race win for us. You know, and obviously we did, 
we did crack it for one race win there, but you know, there you know, I mean, you look at what those guys are doing these days, you know, and, and you compare where we were. I think for for a little team running in my backyard, I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah, as you mentioned, you did win a race, and that was at Winton in 2013, where you, you held up some seriously well-credentialed drivers to pick up your first victory in the Super 2 Series. Uh, how special was that after all of the effort that you'd gone to to get to that point? Oh, yeah. Oh, it was huge. I mean, I don't like to think of it as I was holding them up, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I like to think that I was racing them. But, um, yeah, no, it was, it was really satisfying. I mean, it you know, it took a long time and, you know, a lot of effort and a lot of, a lot of time to to win one individual race for the, for the whole time I was in that category. It, it was tough going in, in Dunlop Series. It was, it was the toughest thing I've ever done. The other thing that happened in that era, which was actually going back a couple of years, back to 2010, but you made a start in the Bathurst 1000 in a wildcard entry, which was run by Greg Murphy Racing. And originally on that weekend, you were supposed to be driving with Rob Salmon, but there were a couple of issues which meant that he wasn't able to drive. And uh, who should get called into the co-driver seat but your old Commodore Cup starring partner, Marcus Zucanovic? Yeah, that was great. I mean, obviously, um, it, it was good to drive with Marcus. I know, you know, we had a we had a really good race, solid race. You know, we kept the car going, and you know, there, there was there was only one safety car incident in a whole race. That's that's when Fabian came back through the through the sand pit there at the chase. So you know, the, the car the, the whole race went green after that, and I think we only went down maybe one lap, maybe two laps in a whole in a whole in a whole race there, which I thought was pretty good that went green for the whole thing. So for a couple of newbies, a couple of, you know, wild cards, I think we did, you know, a pretty solid job. So we get to 2014, um, and again, a bit of restructure going on in the background. Uh, Ross Reynolds, one of your good friends, got involved with some commercial arrangements that were happening off the track. You you teamed up with Jim Polisena and Matt Hanson in a team that was branded as GMJ Motorsport. But uh, by the end of 2014, you decided that that was your time in the development series done. What uh, made you, what was the driving factor behind your decision to move on at that point? Look, you know, I mean, I was racing against, you know, much younger guys, you know, there was guys like, you know, Heimgartner and Jason and Waters and Dumbrell and, you know, all those sort of guys, and they were sort of, you know, fairly younger than me, and obviously Jack LeBrock and all those guys were coming through, you know, Todd Hazelwood, there's so many, so many big names that you can think of in that year that, you know, obviously that you know, those guys were sort of very competitive and it was sort of getting really hard to to compete with those guys. If I'm not if I don't feel as I'm competitive and can run somewhere, you know, near the front, then I'm probably doing the wrong thing and need to step back and, and have a look and do something else and you know, just refresh and you know, just and just do you know, so when I started to um obviously started to do a couple of pro ams with the Porsche stuff. So I started got, getting pretty interested in that and I was watching what Tony was doing with the Porsche and he looked like he was having a lot of fun. So I sort of started to head towards that direction. I think one of the things when you look at the Australian motorsport landscape and, uh, you know, in particular the, the motorsport media here in Australia tend to be quite fixated on the young drivers who are aiming to make a professional career in the sport or, or those who are at the top level of the sport in supercars. What's... Uh, Unfortunately, sometimes gets overlooked, though, is that there's another way that you can have a very successful career in motorsport, as you've demonstrated, which is to be very successful off the track. 
and generate enough revenue with what you achieve off the track so that you have the funds to go and enjoy yourself on the track. So I think it's very important that we touch on the success that you've achieved as an individual outside of racing. Um, Firstly, with the national uh, national directory distribution business, which you were the one responsible for distributing phone books all over Australia, but uh, also some of what you've achieved in property investment. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, delivering the directories for Telstra was um, was a big part of it. That sort of gave me the start to sort of um, give me enough capital to you know obviously start investing in, in you know commercial property and, and, and building commercial properties and stuff like that. So. You know, I, I, you know, probably motorsport was my probably my biggest motivation to to have a business that could could provide for that. I guess is is, is the right way to look at it because I mean, it's it really did um, it really does need a fair bit of cash to come and do this sort of stuff. So you know, I had a lot of motivation to to work that business hard enough so that I could achieve what I wanted to achieve in motorsport. And I guess that was the whole thing sort of all went all went side by side. So yeah, it's a lot of hard work in that you know, on on and off the track to get that. So after 2014, you decided to move away from the development series and move into the Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge, and uh, that would yield another championship for you because you won the elite class in the GT3 Cup in 2015. How was it making the transition after spending so long racing supercars into the Porsche? To be honest, it was a it was a breath of fresh air for me. I I really enjoyed jumping into the Porsche, and you know, I was racing against guys like you know Ryan Simpson and, and Dylan O'Keefe. So, you know, the three of us went head to head in that championship. I mean, I finished third overall in the overall championship, and obviously I won the, the elite class because I, I think we won every single race apart from one race with elite. But um, you know, every now and then I'd beat Dylan, and he'd beat me, and you know, obviously we're saying with Ryan, so we had a really good run over the year, and obviously Ryan won the championship. We could obviously did a job, so um, you know it was sort of Dylan was coming of age then, and you know it was good to sort of race against the younger guys and still be able to you know mix it with those guys. So I, I had a, I had a great time doing the Porsche, especially obviously I was with Roscoe as well, which was a good friend of mine. We just enjoyed our weekends car racing again, you know, where it wasn't so serious. I mean, the Dunlop series was just full on serious. It was so much hard work in between each session just to find a tenth here and a tenth there with tuning in the car. Whereas the Porsche, I just had to get in and drive it, and it was it was a really good breath of fresh air for me. At that stage as well, you were starting to have a play in some GT cars. You did some rounds with Erebus in one of their Mercedes SLS GT3 cars in 2015. And then in 2016, making the move across to the Audi R8 with the Melbourne Performance Centre outfit. What was it like driving a car with that much aero? Because, again, I, I can imagine it must have been completely different in terms of driving technique to anything that you'd raced before. Yeah, well, the main idea for getting in the Porsche um, GT3 Challenge was to get, um, for me, with the car, because I've, I've been doing a couple of races here uh, with uh, McElroy Racing just on and off, and, and I didn't, I wasn't 100% confident in driving the car because I hadn't done enough miles in it. So that was one of the main reasons for buying the GT3 Challenge car. And then obviously, I did the full season by one round uh, with Max Twig in the Erebus car, and you know, learning the aero with those cars was was just another world again. After coming out of supercars with with virtually no aero, and you know, you know, there was it was actually really nice to jump in that that car with um with Max and and sort of learn how to drive that SLS. That SLS this had so much grunt; it was just so comfortable to drive, and we did a lot of endurance racing and that, and that was that was, that was really good. And once I started doing that, I was I was sort of hooked on GT racing, to be honest. 
hooked on JT Racing and uh, jumped into the Audi in 2016, run as part of the Melbourne Performance Centre team, which were running the Audi Sport Customer Racing Program. One of the things that everybody talks about with the Audis is that they have a very heavy reliance on corner speed compared to a lot of the other GT3 cars. It's how they achieve their lap times as being able to carry higher corner speeds than a lot of the other cars. How did you go with adapting to the Audi? Look, it took a little while. Obviously, I had some um, some good engineering behind me in, in Paul Stepanich. So at the start, and obviously, I you know got over the guys like Chris Mees and stuff like that, and so looking at their data, and, and because I understand the, the, the reading of the data quite well, I, I sort of picked it up fairly quickly. You know, I mean, I've still I've still got lots of learning in GT, no doubt, but um, yeah, just having good people around you and a good team with Melbourne Performance Centre, they just, it just it just all happens with those guys. You know, everyone's very professional in what they did, and it just made my life really easy just to turn up my helmet and drive their car as fast as I could, which is what I love doing. Yeah, but unfortunately in the 2016 season, it came to a pretty abrupt halt at Barbagallo over in Perth coming out of the final corner where you've got to be sideways and fired it into the fence on the left-hand side and sustained a pretty nasty back injury. Um, what do you remember from that incident? What, what actually happened to for you to end up in that situation? Obviously, I came around, came down into that last breaking point there at, uh, at the last turn down the hill there, and had a little little come together with um, Roger Largo on the Lambo, and it broke the tow link on the right hand rear of the car. So, so the car was still the car was still turned right, but as soon as I got on the throttle, it uh, power steered left immediately, and uh, it just it launched me over the curb, and I was clearly out of control and heading for the fence, and I sort of went. Yeah, as it sort of it sort of nose dived underneath the, the tractor tire there and hit the concrete, so it ended up a fairly hard hit rather than bouncing off the tires there. So, yeah, obviously it uh, crushed a vertebrae and it was a real probably you know, the worst crash of my life. Obviously, but I mean it wasn't it wasn't that spectacular to watch, but it did the most amount of damage to me. You know, and it sort of I hadn't really fully recovered from it to be honest. Yeah, the, the hard and sudden stops are always the worst because the energy goes straight through to the person who's sitting in the driver's seat. Um, I mean, what was involved from that point in terms of rehabilitation and getting yourself back into a position where you could go racing again? Well, it probably took me about... Uh, probably took me about four to five weeks to actually be able to get out of bed, and then probably took me about six weeks to learn to walk again. And then there was just a lot of rehab from that, that moment onwards. It was just constant every second day. There'd just be I'd just be at the rehab, just trying to get back to you know strength again, and a lot of Pilates, a lot of just just walking at the start, trying to trying to get moving again. And so it took me pretty much that whole season just to get going again, and you know, and then. Um, then the doctor said, "Well, you can't really go racing with those with all the steel and that in your back." He said, "If you have another crash, he said you'll probably never walk again." So we decided after seven months of having the screws in. He said, that, "He said the shortest amount of time I've ever done to put the screws in and taken them out was six months." So I went there after six months and said, "Right, it's time. Pull them out. Let's go." And he said, he just sort of looked at me and, and he had a bit of a chuckle. He said, oh, we'll go for an extra round. We'll have a look. And he said, we'll leave another month. And he booked me in and I got them taken out in December, start of December. I went to the um, the Christmas party at the Addy guys there and they had a brand new car sitting there. And they said, oh, would you like to sit in the car? So I sat in the car. They said, you look really good in it. Would you like to drive it? I said, oh, 
I think I'm a bit sore still, you know, because I still had stitches in my back from having the, the screws out. And it's, it's, so we just sort of worked on a deal and we jumped in the car at Clipsville there. And I think we finished P5 in the first round back out, which was not too bad to, for having been so injured and with no practice and stuff. Obviously, I hadn't driven the car in a year, so it was fairly, you know, fairly satisfying to do that. Motorsport, as we know, is a sport of highs and lows. And from the low of that horrific crash in 2016, you would come back in 2017. And you mentioned there that you finished in the top five in your first round back. But you would go on to win the championship that year. Uh, Considering the adversity that you had to overcome, would you rate that as one of your most satisfying championship victories? Yeah, 100%. That was, that was a big thing to come back from. I, I guess the biggest thing for me was was I was a bit concerned about going back to the Barbicala. Obviously, you know, a bit of a nemesis track after that. And and the boys were a bit worried about me driving there. And I sort of jumped in the car with the first practice session. And I said, look, you know, and I was racing with Calvin Bendelin that weekend. They said, look, Calvin's never been here before. So, uh, so I jumped in the car for the first session. And um, it, within three laps, I'd put the car P1. And they thought obviously they they were gonna they were gonna give me the whole session, but um, obviously not. They said they put they put Calvin straight in after three after three laps. So yeah, so after three laps, I put the car P one, and to be honest, that was pretty much my highlight of the year. To be honest, I, I you know it's sort of it's um pretty pretty cool to be able to do that. Um, obviously from that. 2017 championship win, you would go on to win again in 2018 in pretty dramatic circumstances at the final round in New Zealand, as I recall. And then in 2019, you won again. Um, Admittedly, the competition in 2019 was maybe not quite at the level that it was at in 2017 or or 2018, but Tony Bates, when he was talking to me about it, he he said that he's never seen a drive with this knack of, of... managing to win championships even despite everything seemingly looking against all odds. So look at the 2018 season in particular because that final round, it was was it Highlands Motorsport Park or Hampton Downs? I was at Hampton Downs that round, yeah. yeah. What do you remember that, that round? We were hoping, I was hoping to get a podium for the year for that round and then, you know, sort of the broken axle and when Guth went out to qualify, so our qualify session was buggered. So we qualified back in the field. We just we thought, well, this weekend's just getting worse and worse. So we thought, well, hopefully that's our bad luck for the weekend, and everyone else can theirs have theirs during the race. And and that's pretty much how it went. So we just went out there and you know I drove as fast as I could for as long as I could, and I handed a, I think I handed the car back over to Garth in P3 or P4. And he only had like two or three cars to pass, and and I'm looking. I was looking at the boys going, oh, I think we're going to win this championship now. They said, No, nah, we surely not. I said, Mate, we've got about 20 laps to go. I said, Mate, I reckon Garth's going to pass it. Last two cars, and we're going to win. It was just totally unexpected, to be honest. I went there with absolutely no, no intention of winning the championship, and it just happened. It was great. I'll tell you what, if you need to pick a co-driver who you want to get the job done in terms of passing cars and making up positions on the track, it's hard to find somebody better than Garth Tander for that role, which probably leads me on to my next question. Throughout this GT era, you've had the chance to team up with some pretty special co-drivers, Garth being one of them, Kelvin Vandalinder being another one. Um how much have you learned as a driver being able to team up with people of that sort of calibre? Oh, you learn off those guys every time you go out. I mean, you're overlaying the data and, you know, just the way they go about 
you know how how they do it. I mean, obviously Garth was obviously the most experienced guy that I've, I've driven with, and you know he was fantastic. He was really really calming for me, and you know I always be getting nervous at sort of the pointy end of the season stuff. You know, obviously with the championship in mind, and and Garth would just get, get in the car and just do the job, and it was it was it was really good to watch, you know, and good experience for me for sure. So when we look at your career as a whole, five Commodore Cup titles, a race win in the Super 2 Series, the elite class title in Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge, three titles plus the Australian Endurance title in the Australian GT Championship. When you look back at everything that you've achieved, what would you say is your proudest achievement? Um... I'd still probably have to go back to the you know, Commodore Cup days when you were sort of building your own car and dragging it to the track with, with with your mates and stuff like that. I mean, obviously I've formed some good relationships now with with the guys at NPC, with you know, with Toby and 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 Eric, and and obviously with um, Lee and Troy. It's been been really good experience. It, nothing beats uh, you know putting the car together yourself and dragging it to the track and developing it, racing it, and winning a championship. I guess so. I'd have to say my Commodore Cup days were the most most rewarding, but um, obviously I, I, I thoroughly enjoy doing the GT stuff that I've been doing lately. It, it really suits what you know, where I want to be and what I want to do. You obviously love motorsport. You love getting out there. You're a competitive individual. You love the whole experience of going motor racing. Motorsport world's a bit on hold at the moment with the, the COVID-19 situation that we all find ourselves in. But uh, what's next on the horizon for Jeff Emery? To be very honest, I didn't really have anything to race this year, to be honest. We, I hadn't actually done a deal as, as such. And obviously the GT was still a little way from starting. We were, we were sort of talking about a couple of different things. But um, I don't know. Maybe GT, you know, maybe um, maybe we might grab a TA2 car and have a bit of a play with that for a little while. And, you know, that that could, that could suit me. So, you know, it'll, it'll either be TA2 or GT or something like that. I mean, I've obviously got the um, AAA car sitting there as well. But I don't think I'll bring that back out again. I mean, that's, you know, the young kids are you know, racing around and those things there. They're all pretty competitive. And to start developing that car at this point, probably a bit difficult, you know, they'll take a fair effort. But, um yeah, so I'm thinking like TA2 and probably GT is probably where I'm going to fit, or even maybe a bit of Porsche as well. Again, when we look at your achievements and the drivers who you've raced against and, and finish ahead of, considering that you are, in inverted commas, a gentleman driver, uh, a lot of the things that you've achieved are the envy of a lot of other people in motorsport. You, you have a CV that uh, a lot of people would die for. Does it make you wish that you'd got into motorsport earlier and maybe pursued a career as a professional racing driver? Oh, that was obviously, you know, a thing that I wanted to do at a younger age. But um, as we all know, motorsport's expensive, so I had to go and earn the money before I could race. So, no, unfortunately, I wasn't I wasn't born into millions like a lot of the other kids are these days. So, you know, I had to, uh, what comes first, you know, the horse or the cart, you sort of had to come, you know, I had to get the money first before I could do it. But, you know, yeah, who knows what would have happened if I had been doing it when I was when I was a kid. You know, it would have been great to start in go-karts and, and weave my way through and, you know, it would have been fantastic, I reckon. I don't think, you know, I don't think I would have been finishing last, that's for sure. 
So we're going to finish up the podcast with a segment that I call Checkered Flag Choices. It's basically, yeah, it's basically speed dating by another name. So I'm going to ask you five questions, and uh, basically you just have to answer these questions as succinctly as you can. So to start off with, Jeff, what would be your favourite holiday destination? Um, I like going to Vegas, to be honest. Vegas. Yeah, good choice. Uh, who are three people that you would invite to dinner? Um, obviously my wife. Uh, who would be the other two? Uh, my teammates, Calvin and Garth. They're good bikes. There you go. Yep, good job. You're, uh, you're not going to upset too many people with that <laughs> one. Uh, now, now, this next one's an interesting one because we've seen that you've owned some pretty cool road cars over the years, some supercharged HSVs, which I've been fortunate or unfortunate enough to go for a ride in, depend on, depending on how you look at it, some Mercedes and a Chev Corvette. But what is your dream car? Um, I'm really enjoying my uh, C7R Corvette at the moment. It's, um, it's, a, it's a really good car. I've had that for about 80 months now, and it's a fast car, so I guess that's my dream car at the moment. It's perfect. Nice. It. Nice. You're actually lucky enough to own your dream car. What's the best advice that you've been given about motorsport? That's a good question, Rocky. I don't really know. Um, you've got me there. <laughs> I've been given so much advice over the years. <laughs> It's, um, I guess, you know, best advice is, I mean, I'm pretty, pretty agitated at the track and, and sort of, uh, it's probably just trying to, people just probably trying to calm me down, I guess, you know, just more calming advice more than anything, I guess, because I get really intense about it. I guess, yeah, calming advice, I guess that would be the answer. Mm. And finally, the racing driver, past or present, that you respect the most? Um, I reckon Shane Van Gieff is probably the one the ones I respect. He's, um, he's doing a great job out there at the moment. He's actually a good friend of mine as well. So, yeah, he's, yeah I, I respect what he does for sure. He's, he's really good. He certainly is a uh, very versatile with adapting between all different types of cars as well. So uh, that wraps up this episode of Checkered Flag Chat. Thanks for your time, Jeff. And again, uh, I think probably the, the biggest thing that we take away from this is the, the inspiration that you've given to people that uh, even if you're not necessarily in a position to forge a career as a professional racer, it's still very much possible to have a lot of success in motorsport by working hard off the track and then having fun on the track. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, the last few years I've been picking my battles. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it proves that you can you can have a long-lasting motorsport career if you just, you know, just move through the categories. And, you know, I'm still having a great time. So I think there's still a fair bit of future in it for me, to be honest. It's um, a few years left in me yet. So there you have it, an inspirational story of how Jeff Emery has been able to achieve a long-lasting and successful motorsport career. Over the coming weeks, we have more guests in the pipeline for Checkered Flag Chat. If you think there's someone whose motorsport adventures should be thrust into the spotlight, drop us a line via the Checkered Flag Media social media channels. I'm Lockie Mansell. Thanks for listening.